Hear the reading of the Lord from Jonah 3, 10 through 4, 11, and Matthew 12, 38 through 41. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was, in, when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he, till he should see what would come, become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Matthew 12, 38 through 41. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you. When uh, Scott started praying for those who were anxious and distressed, I thought he was going to start talking about Alabama fans there for a minute, but, uh, uh, but uh, he kept going to a wider focus there. <laughs> I'm just interested in offending 50% of the people in the room. That's all right. <laughs> this, uh, this passage... Jonah chapter 4 brings us to the final message in this series on the deeper love of God, deeper than our sin, deeper than our fear, deeper than our anxiety, deeper than our treasonous rebellion, our fleeing from the face of God. And it has a particularly special place in my own journey. Uh, in 1996, on a Sunday morning, some friends of ours who lived in the area asked us to join them 
for a worship service in Franklin, Tennessee at a place called Christ Community Church. And so with probably a bunch of you, I stood outside in a line waiting to get into a, 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 church that, a church building that doesn't even exist anymore in downtown Franklin. And I, I came in with everybody else and I took my seat on an old orange pew. And I uh, enjoyed the worship. And then our founding pastor, Scotty Smith, got up to preach on Jonah 4, on anger with God. And I was an angry person. Like Jonah, I was sitting under that plant, that gourd, fuming. We were in a distressed place. Uh, we'd come through a season where we felt like we'd lost everything. And um, the people had treated us badly. And we were ready to bail on everything. A lot of the things we believed were called into question. Your whole worldview gets shaken. Your ecclesiology gets messed with. Your theology gets tossed upside down. And so there I, I sat in that worship, not with hands raised in worship, but with arms folded in anger. Not least because a lot of the people around me seemed pretty happy. And then he got up and preached on being angry with God. Oh, thanks very much. That helps. Do you know what? For Tony who was feeling exactly the same as me, and for us, that moment became a place of great deliverance. Because by the end of that message, we'd come to realize that only Jesus has shoulders that are big enough to carry the chip we'd been carrying. You and I are people who like the taste of bitterness and anger, but when we go there, it creates a prison of resentment that traps us in places that poison the soul, that are corrosive to the heart and to our relationships. That corrosive anger is not something that only happens in church settings. It's in fact, in some ways, characteristic of the time in which we live. In an article in The Guardian a short time ago, I found these words, we find ourselves in an age of anger, authoritarian leaders manipulating the cynicism and discontent of furious majorities. What used to be called Muslim rage and identified with mobs of brown-skinned men with bushy beards is suddenly manifest globally among saffron-robed Buddhist ethnic cleansers in Myanmar as well as blonde white nationalists in Germany. Violent hate crimes have blighted even the oldest of parliamentary democracies. The largely Anglo-American intellectual assumptions forged by the Cold War and its jubilant aftermath are an unreliable guide to today's chaos. And so we must turn to the ideas of an earlier era of volatility. It is a moment for thinkers like Sigmund Freud who warned in 1915 that the primitive, savage, and evil impulses of mankind have not vanished in any individual, but are simply waiting for the opportunity to show themselves again. The current conflagration has brought to the surface what Nietzsche called resentiment, 
a whole tremulous realm of subterranean revenge, inexhaustible and insatiable in outbursts. You can eat anger for breakfast, and you can sleep with it at night, but you can't do it and not suffer damage to the soul. And our entire society is convulsed with anger, fury as people hurl insults at one another across social media platforms. You find it sadly in churches too, and of course in homes, and strangely with a prophet. You might think that prophets are above such things. You might think pastors are above such things. But we are not. And we deal with the same kinds of anger that anybody deals with. Anger in our homes, anger with ourselves, anger with our personal disappointments, anger with our culture, anger with other pastors. Because when pastors get together, you've never met a more neurotic or strange group of people. Jonah was angry. He lived in an age of rage. And he sat down east of the city to see what would happen. He had gone through the city of Nineveh, 120,000 people. This great city took three days to walk across. This amazing city with its high walls. You'll remember so wide that chariot races were held around the top of that wall, six abreast. This magnificent city, which was great in its eroticism, great in its military might, great in its commercial wealth, great in the terror it inflicted on its neighbors, the capital of the ancient empire of the Assyrians, a place that was, in the Hebrew worldview, ripe for judgment, and they wanted judgment on them because those Assyrians are the people who kept trying to destroy them. And God said to Jonah, I want you to go to those people. And Jonah, as you know, went as far away from that as you could possibly get. And then God had mercy on him. And God's mercy took a strange shape. Jonah was hurled into the ocean, swallowed by a fish, carried down into the depths, <laughs> became fish vomit. Up onto the shore he came, and then he walked through the city announcing God's judgment, and then God did not do what Jonah said he would do. And Jonah said, that's why I'm mad. I knew you'd do that. I knew you'd forgive those people, and I did not want them to be forgiven. Jonah was not running away from the Ninevites because he was afraid of what they would do to him. Jonah ran away from the Ninevites because he was afraid of what God would do for them. The people Jonah hated, the people Jonah wanted God to judge. Jonah was a member of Westboro Baptist, and he protested with big signs saying, God hates fags, and attended the funerals of people that were otherwise honored. He was angry. How many of you are glad you probably weren't friends with Jonah on Facebook? Those would be some interesting posts. God, I'm mad. And over again in the passage in verse 4 and 9, God asked Jonah twice, 
What right do you have to be angry? And twice in the passage, in verse 3 and in verse 8, Jonah says, I'd rather die. I'd rather die. Would you say it with me? I'd rather die. Why would he rather die than what? Well, in the first instance, Jonah said, I'd rather die than these people be forgiven. And in the second instance, because God had appointed the plant and then appointed the worm, the same God who had appointed the storm and had appointed the fish, these hard mercies from God, he said, I'd rather die than stay here in this place under this blazing sun with these miserable people. Jonah was angry. Maybe you're angry this morning. And you got to hear God's question to you. Same question he asked Jonah. What right do you have to be angry? Now, I know that some of you might have a good answer to that question. Might be the kind of, que- kind of answer that says, yeah, but you don't know what they did to me at work. I was unjustly dismissed. You don't know what they did to me from the investment firm that's undermining my startup. You don't know what they did to me in the last church I was in, Pastor. So I've come to this church because I know all the people here will always be nice to me. (laughs) You don't know what my children have done to me. You don't know what my spouse used to do. You don't know how I've prayed for a release from this illness and it never happens. How I have prayed that God would somehow take this temptation away, but every day I wake up with it. Yeah, I'm angry. I'm angry. And yet God comes to us and he says, as he said to Jonah, under that gourd, do you have a right to be angry? I'd rather die. I'd rather die, Jonah says, than to see these people receive mercy. Jonah saw mercy as an evil or a wrong that God would do. Because in his view, these people were awful people. They were loathsome. They were wicked. They were evil. They were God's enemies. They were his enemies. God can't have mercy on evil, wicked people. God gives good gifts to good people. That's what church is about, isn't it? Isn't it about good people getting together? That's who all of you are, right? You're the good guys. That's why you're here. You know, give yourself a pat on the back, right? We're the good guys. And yet the Scripture says in the book of Romans that when God has mercy, he has mercy and grace on the, here it is, wait for it, the ungodly, on his enemies, on the helpless, on sinners. That's quite a biography, quite a description of humankind. Ungodly, helpless, sinful, enemies, enemies of God. People going against God and as far away from God as you can possibly get. And yet God says, I will have mercy on them. All the people that you don't want God to save, all the people who when you 
open up your news feed and you see that they died, like Charles Manson a couple of weeks ago, you go, well, well, good. Rot in hell, you bastard. You know, one of the things you learn is to leave the eternal destinations of souls with the Almighty. Because where people end up is above our pay grade. You know, if he died an impenitent murderer, then of course his soul is perished. But can I ask you a question? Do you rejoice that a soul perishes? You see, here's the thing. God was kind to Jonah. God was kind to him. He sent the wind, he sent the storm, he sent the fish, he grew the plant, he sent the worm that took down the plant. Jonah had great theology. Here in the book of Jonah, listen to these words. He says, I knew that you would do this. And then Jonah gives this really good confession. He says in this passage in Jonah chapter 4, a wonderful theological summary This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were, listen to it, a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. (laughs) You won't find a better theological summary of who God is. Jonah had good theology. But great theology can just make your trip to hell more comfortable. There have always been people who profess the faith, but have never been possessed by the faith. I'm pretty sure that if you sat down with a few of those folks from Westboro Baptist who are so full of anger and hatred, that if you put to them some questions of theological orthodoxy, they could probably pass the test on a large number of central tenets of the faith. And yet, they have forgotten, have they not? And have not we? That if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but don't have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove all mountains but don't have love, I am nothing. And that if I could pass every theological exam and memorize the Westminster Shorter Catechism but don't have love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, deliver up my body to be burned but don't have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So what happened to Jonah? What happened? It's interesting, you see, Jonah chapter 4 ends with a, with a question, where God comes to Jonah and he says, uh, You're upset about that plant dying, aren't you? 
And Jonah says, you better believe I'm mad about the plant. It was providing me shade from this blazing Middle Eastern sun. You grew the plant, and God, you unjust God, you sent a worm and took away my shade? What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> and it came down. He said he was angry. Hey, Jonah, you're angry about a plant. You're upset because this overnight sensation has passed away. Jonah, I care about 120,000 people that don't know their right hand from their left. These people that you view as your enemies, these people that you despise, these people that when you see them on the media that you look at and go, that's disgusting. God says, I love those people. I have compassion on those people. Should I not have compassion on these people who don't know their right hand from their left? What happened to Jonah? Because Jonah offers no answer. There's a clue. There's a clue in history. There's a clue in history. If you go to Mosul in Iraq, the ancient site, the site of ancient Nineveh, you'll see a memorial there, a tomb that has been raised to a great prophet named Jonah. What happened to Jonah? Jonah stayed. He's buried there. He stayed. He had gone east of the city and sat down there just to see what would happen. I wonder if God will change his mind and kill him. But when God came to him and he asked him that question, hey, Jonah, I care about these people. Something must have happened in Jonah's heart that took him from east of the city back down into the middle of it. And here's the truth. Jonah spent the rest of his days in Nineveh serving the people he used to hate. And when he died, they buried him there. And his monument stands to this day. Here is a man, here is a man who brought us the word of the Lord. Jonah points us ahead to the greater Jonah. Jesus said to his own generation, the greater Jonah is among you. The word it's used here in Jonah chapter 4 about God sparing the people is a word that means to spare their tears by having tears yourself. God spared the Ninevites, but it wasn't simply a judicial declaration that God just went, okay, all's forgiven. One commentator put it this way, the action God took is a suffering action. God chooses to suffer in place of Nineveh. His tears flowed instead of theirs. Jonah 1.0 said, I'd rather die than see these people forgiven. But Jonah 2.0, the greater Jonah, said, 
I'd rather die than see any of these people perish. Jesus said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so I will be three days in the grave and rise again. Jonah saw a gourd grow up and cover him with shade. Jesus, the greater Jonah, saw a tree grow up and become a cross, and they hung him on it, and he died on it outside the city. Not looking on the city to see if it would be destroyed, but from outside the city, hanging on a cross, gazing on thousands of people, not just in that place and in that time, but down through the corridors of history into places like Franklin, Tennessee, into rooms like this, saying, I love you, and I will cry so that you don't have to. And I will take the anger and the bitterness and the rage, and I will swallow that poison, and I will drink its dregs so that you can be free to live in light and in love. No more bitterness, no more anger, no more unforgiveness, but for God and for neighbors, the mercy and the peace that comes from the gospel. The first Nineveh ran away, but the greater, the first Jonah ran away, but the greater Jonah has run towards us. He's run towards our pain. He's run towards our anger. He runs towards our souls today. And he says to each of you, don't be trapped by your anger. Don't live in the age of rage. You are people who have been given mercy. And so let mercy for others shape your soul and shape your life. Jesus, the greater Jonah, has died for you and been raised for you and will come again for you. And just as that other Jonah lived and served, so your greater Jonah ever lives to intercede for you. He shepherds you. He dwells among us. And he has set a table for us this day that we might never forget that he had compassion on us how thankful we must be. Amen? Let's pray together. Oh, greater Jonah, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have run towards us, not away. Thank you that when you saw the cross, you did not turn away from it, but you embraced it. Thank you that you did not look upon our affliction with anger and rage Thank you that you did not say, I'd rather die than see them forgiven. Thank you that you said, I'd rather die than any of them perish. And now, Lord, we bless you. Would you please now, by your spirit, reach into every heart and every soul here, trapped by anger, trapped by resentment, whether it's anger with themselves or anger with another, and would you break through that now by your spirit and bring liberty and freedom to every prisoner of resentment? so that joy might come flooding back and mercy might become the shape of their soul. See the distorted places in our hearts and heal them by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name.
Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Let's stand together, beloved, and with one heart and one voice, Confess our ancient faith together in Jesus through the words of the Apostles' Creed. Beloved of the Lord, forgiven people, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray together for our offering today. Lord, we come before you with grateful hearts. Thank you that you have given your life for ours. Receive now these thankful offerings, these thanksgiving offerings, that your name may be glorified. We pray in that precious and mighty name. Amen. Let's be seated together and worship God in our giving today. Amen. Let's stand together. Great to be together. Bless the Lord. God has been good to us. He's run towards us in His mercy and love. If you're new with us today, it's been a special joy to worship with you, and I'd like the opportunity to greet you personally. Um, I'll just be over here immediately after the service. We've got a reception in honor of all of our newcomers today, so if you'd just like a chance to say hi, I'd love the opportunity to greet you personally. Now, one of the great privileges, we invoke God's name on our lives and His benediction. Let's receive the Lord's benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and to be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's sing and rejoice and give the Lord glory as we go. <laughs> 